Nima Uh, let's read God's word together uh, to prepare our hearts and minds for what Dan's going to share with us. Please turn to James. That's going to be no surprise. But this session we're going to be focusing on chapter 2. I'm going to read, we'll pray, and then hopefully the video will begin. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you, pay, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your voice. The voice that brings control out of chaos, life where there is death, light where there is darkness, wisdom where there is foolishness, and certainty where there is doubt. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you equip us to know what you're saying? We pray for Dan that how you've worked in him and his preparation would overflow to us today. Give us ears to listen. 
And as it's after lunch, we also pray that we wouldn't be in a lull, but we would be alive and alert. Wake us up, Lord. May this session be a session where our belief impacts our behavior, where we're challenged in how we treat people, where we're astounded again at the reality of your judgment, yet humbled by your incredible mercy. Help faith to be alive in all we think, say, and do, because we want to live for you, and not just through what we believe, but by everything we are and everything we do. We ask it for your glory, our good, and in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning, fellow pastors in Ireland. It is uh, my sorrow that I'm not able to be with you for this conference in person, but of course we do live in a technological age that allows me to be with you. Uh, it's hard for me to overestimate uh, how much I wanted to be in Ireland. Um, I'm more than half Irish on my mother's side and I've never been to Ireland. I've lost two planned trips to Ireland and I definitely hope to to visit your fair land one day and to uh, walk the ground of my ancestors. We're looking at the book of James together, and I want to say just a couple things before we start. The first is that I have studied James uh, fairly extensively over the years, and as a consequence have decided that I actually, on this occasion, like the NIV translation, I think it captures some things a little bit better. Uh, than the ESV, which I ordinarily use. I'm not sure what version you use. I'm going to say that um, although my text is James chapter 2, I'm going to be looking especially at James 1, 26 and 27. I see that as the uh, launching point for James 2, 3, and 4. So this morning I'll be overlapping somewhat with the lecture on James 1 that you just enjoyed a little while ago. Um, and... Uh, and linking James chapter 1, 26 and 27 through chapter 2, verse 26. I would like to begin with a reading of the passage, chapter 1, 26 through 2, 4. Uh, but first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that uh, despite uh, miles and also cultural differences, that you would uh, knit us together in the study of this marvelous book that you inspired so long ago, to be written by the half-brother of Jesus, James. Uh, speak to us, Lord, as ministers of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We read the text that I have and that you may have as well. This is God's word. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, the next few verses seem to be a non sequitur, but I'm going to argue that they're very closely connected to 1, 26 and 27. And so chapter 2 begins with a humble scene in a gathering of believers. My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, and yet say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. 
number of years ago, I was on a mission trip, uh, perhaps not entirely unlike the one I planned to have with you. And most of us were staying in a rented house. Um, one man was always awake first. He could be spotted on the porch reading his Bible and praying when the sun came up. One evening, um, he said to me, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm so excited to go to bed each night because I'm that much closer to my time and devotions and prayer in the morning. I can't describe to you how close I feel to God. And as I heard that, as a relatively younger man, I felt that I was a spiritual dung beetle in the presence of a lion of God. Alas, we found out a few months later that that man who was so excited about his devotions was actually sneaking out of the house at night and uh, doing things that were both immoral and illegal. Illegal enough that he was banned from ever returning to that country again because he probably would have been arrested the moment he had arrived. And he'd been doing that for a number of years. And so we found out that this spiritual lion, this spiritual giant, was actually a giant hypocrite. Now, none of that would have surprised Paul or James or Jesus, for that matter. Uh, they knew that religious talk can be cheap. Paul said, keeping God's commandments is what counts in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. That is to say, talk is one thing, but actually following God is another. And here we have uh, James saying it his way, to look after widows and orphans in their distress, to be unstained by the world. That's the essence of true religion. It has to show itself. Again, Paul said something similar. He said what counts is a new creation in Galatians chapter 5.15. So the emphasis in James, in our passage, but also in Paul and certainly also in Jesus, is on the need to actually do God's will, not simply to say, I follow the Lord, or to say the words, I believe in God, but to demonstrate it. Now, James does appeal to spiritual activists. People love the clarity, the commands. There are actually 59 commands in James in just 108 verses. And some people who uh, like to be told what to do with, uh, with clarity and without compromise, are very fond of the book of James. His commands are also graphic, not just clear. Uh, and so he tells us, look, um, you have to actually show in deeds uh, the faith that you claim to have in your heart. True religion, verse 26 of chapter 1, real faith comes from the heart, but it also demonstrates itself. Now, just to go back a little bit to points you probably covered in the previous lecture, James uh, doesn't proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. He doesn't mention the blood of Christ or the atonement or justification by faith. But he certainly does appeal to the gospel in various ways. Probably best to say he, he assumed that his people knew the gospel. And he alludes to it, for example, in chapter 118 uh, of James. Uh, James tells us, that God has given us new life by the word of truth. Now, that little phrase, word of truth, appears a handful of times in the New Testament, and it means the gospel. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1.13, it says, In Christ you heard the word of truth, the gospel, you, uh, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him and were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we were reborn by the word of truth, 1.18 of James, and the word of truth is the gospel. James chapter 1, verse 21 talks about God giving new life and uses this language. He says, therefore, put away all 
filthiness and the rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so the implanted word is the word of God, the gospel which God himself implanted. My point then is that James insists very much in obedience, but he assumes that obedience and reflects that in his language that obedience is, is following rebirth, the word of God implanted. And that word, still reviewing chapter 1, uh, verses 22-25, is like a mirror to the soul, and it, it reveals our spiritual condition. And so when we read the word, we need to take it to heart. And it's not enough, again, to profess it. If James says it once, he says it three times, um, if we profess faith and have no deeds, our faith is vain and dead and useless. That's chapter 2, verses 17, 20, and 26. Now, when we use the word religion, religion, true religion, religion that proves itself in deeds, uh, some people uh, get a little bit nervous, at least in America. Uh, religion is, um, is ordinarily a negative thing. If somebody says, I'm religious, what they mean is they... They go to church once in a while, and, and maybe they read the Bible on occasion, and they've been baptized, and so forth. Um, but religion has a connotation of uh, the ritual, uh, not, not the real thing. Now, James is saying it's not enough to proclaim that you have true religion. True religion proves itself by caring for orphans and widows in their distress, controlling the tongue, being unstained by the world. That's what 126 and 127 say, and, and that has to prove itself. That's the theme of really chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. So let's just walk through those signs of true religion for a moment. So James first says that true religion controls or bridles the tongue. And throughout the book, as throughout the New Testament, he makes comments about matters such as angry talk and gossip and deception and various other failures of speech. For example, in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, James warns against self-justifying speech. So when tempted, no one should blame God and say, God is tempting me. That's chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And then second, in chapter 2, he condemns careless speech that wishes people well, be warmed and well-fed and never lifts a finger. And he also, in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, questions the person who, has, who says, I have faith, uh, but they have no deeds to confirm it. That's really verses 18 to 20. And then in chapter 3, he says, you know, the tongue can, can boast, and it can spark a fire, and it can cause conflict, and, and real religion reigns that in. So uh, the first test of true religion, according to James, is um, controlling the tongue or bridling the tongue, and, and then he walks through what that might mean. The second thing he says is that true religion visits orphans and widows in their distress. Now, they form a pair. Orphans and widows are the, are the weak. They're the defenseless. There's those who, who cannot take care of themselves. They're, they're liable to be exploited, and one of the marks of God is that he takes care of of, or the Bible says he is a, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. That's Psalm 68, verse 5. And God commands Israel to follow him and his ways in caring for the needy. We should do the same. And there are various laws in the Old Testament about gleaning that allow people who don't have wealth to find a way to work 
and to care for themselves. And so that's that's caring for the widow and the orphan and their distress. So that's that's essential to true religion. And, and kindness to widows and orphans has a certain purity to it because widows and orphans are not only poor, but they're likely to stay, stay poor and unlikely to be able to return a favor. Whereas if we uh, show kindness to someone who's of our social class and our social or economic class is, is fairly prosperous, we can probably assume that they might help us out in return one day. And so kindness to the, uh, to the widow and the orphan, the poor, the, the people at the bottom of the social ladder is, is very godlike. And we sustain aliens and widows and orphans because he does. That's Psalm 146. We care for, for these outcasts like aliens. You know, um, the fourth commandment says, when we rest, we give our sons and daughters, our beasts, our servants, and the alien within your gates a day of rest as well. So these are, these are all signs that we're following God's interest. We're following God himself in acts that show that we're genuinely adhering to him and to his ways. The third test of true religion is unstained by the world, and that's developed mostly in chapter 4. Uh, Control of the tongue is probably studied the most or, or developed the most in chapter 3. And chapter 4 is, is going to tell us about being stained by the world. It says, for example, that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And so anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So we need to avoid, avoid worldliness. In these ways, we remain pure. Just to hit the big, big theme, I'm... I'm saying that in, as I understand the book of James, chapter 1, 26 and 27, is, uh, is the core teaching. It's the, it's the theme of the book. And just to read it one more time, if anyone considers himself religious, that is to say a follower of God in this case, and yet does not, number one, keep a tight rein in his tongue, number two, um, he deceives himself, number two, religion that is pure and faultless, looks after orphans and widows in their distress, and number three, it's unpolluted by the world. So twice in 126 and 27, it commends uh, true religion, pure religion, genuine religion. Now I have to say that again, in America, the word religion um, does have some negative connotations. Um, and so to talk about true religion or genuine or pure religion is a little bit odd to some Western ears because religion tends to call up images of uh, ceremonies that maybe don't have a biblical basis, vestments and chanting and choirs and incense and ringing of bells. And, uh, you know, one person said, religion is what's left when the Holy Spirit leaves the room. It's, it's the shell. It's the, it's the show. It's uh, visiting a cathedral once a year for a feeling of of transcendence. So that's, that's what the word usually means, at least in my culture. And honestly, uh, if you look at the New Testament, the word religion is generally a negative word in the New Testament. If you want to check it out, look at passages like Acts 26.5, uh, Colossians 2.18. There is certainly a piety that removes us from God, the Pharisees and and uh, most of the scribes or teachers of the law had that kind of piety, that kind of religion that took them away from God, away from Jesus, made them hostile to Jesus. Uh, but James is essentially saying this. Does the show of religion frighten you? Uh, here's what frightens me. No show of religion. 
no signs, no proof, no action. Inaction is what scares me. And in chapter 1, verse 25, James says we should prove ourselves, uh, prove that our faith is real by doing the word. And so we have these three marks. And the first of these is... um, is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which seem to change the subject, actually is on the subject, is on the topic of caring for the poor. And the way James explores it, it actually gives us a, a, a lens on all three tests of true religion. So now we turn to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Now, the theme statement is that we shouldn't show partiality, and a literal translation of the Greek would go like this, do not hold faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. So, um, to believe, truly believe, and to play favorites is is contradictory. Now, uh, the word favoritism is a neologism that possibly was created you know, right around the New Testament time. Some people think possibly uh, created by one of the first Christians. And uh, it is a compound word that means, that has two parts, receive a face. And the idea then is that favoritism is judging people or evaluating people on their, their appearance, uh, their face, maybe the way they dress, the way they carry themselves, uh, their diction, anything, uh, their healthiness, their outward appearance in any form. And certainly favoritism is is all but a constant in human nature. We're constantly assessing people by their skin, by their hair, by their clothes, by their stride, by their smell. And the Bible is aware of this for a long time. For example, way back in the Old Testament when Samuel was looking for a king, turned out to be David, Uh, This word was given, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Don't look at David's brothers and decide who the king is based on his size. The Lord looks at the heart. And so James sketches this out in a scene that we can perhaps easily imagine. Um, God's people are gathering. It doesn't say whether they're gathering for worship or some other person. And uh, seats are scarce and... Uh, the place is crowded, and two people arrive more or less at the same time, and one is wearing fine clothes, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and a gold ring, which signified wealth in those days, and the other is wearing the shabby rags of a poor man. And someone is uh, watching this happen, uh, some kind of a caregiver to the assembly, and makes a decision that the rich person will take the last seat, and the poor person will sit on the floor, or stand off in a corner. So we have this gathering. And again, the poor man is told to sit on the floor. And the rich man gets the last seat. Now that's that's a sign, that's a token of favoritism. And and we might say, well, you know, that, that's wrong, but uh, boy, that's a trivial issue, trivial issue. And, and why would uh, James want to discuss such a trivial thing? We all... We all show low-grade favoritism. It's all but impossible to avoid it. Of course, there's a saying which is ascribed, at least in America, to uh, folks in the United Kingdom, and that is, uh, the true gentleman uses the proper fork when no one is watching. Uh, The point then, of course, is 
that it's in these little things that you recognize a gentleman, and James is saying, in the little things, like favoritism or lack thereof, that we show that we're actually followers of Jesus. And favoritism does touch all three aspects of true religion. True religion helps the poor. But favoritism harms the poor, insults the poor, dishonors the poor. One more time, although God loves the poor and the rich alike, the gospel is the same for everybody, uh, one more time, they're told to sit on the floor, take a back seat. They're told they're not as important. You know, if there's one place where everyone is equal, it should certainly be the church, right? I mean, in the church, we confess that we're all sinners. In church, we confess that there's only one cure for all people, and that is the, the work of Christ. And there's one way to reunited life with God, and that's by trusting in Jesus um, the church is the one place where the poor person should have as good a seat and as good a recognition, love, and welcome as the poor person. We all need the gospel of grace. So if we, if we play favorites, James 2.5 says, we're, um, we're denying the gospel because chapter 2, verse 5, which I didn't read yet, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world. And, and yet... And yet, if the rich and the poor come in simultaneously and the poor person's told to sit on the floor, we're, we're undercutting that. So we're not helping the poor. Number two, true religion, of course, is unstained by the world and favoritism is so worldly. The rich always get preferential treatment. The powerful always get preferential treatment. Jesus honored the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, male and female equally. And... and and James says, you know, it's so foolish to give the better seat to this rich man because uh, the rich are often using their power to exploit you. They throw you in jail, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And then this little scene of favoritism violates the third test of true religion because it doesn't control the tongue. One more time, one more time, the poor person is told with the tongue, sit on the floor, stand in a corner. And so favoritism fails all three tests of true religion. It doesn't help the poor, it's worldly in its favoritism or preference toward the rich, and it misuses the tongue. It's, it's false judgment, chapter 2, verse 4 says, and it contradicts the gospel in uh, all of its flavors. Now, I just want to give a word of application, and you can decide if this applies in, in Ireland as much as it does in America. But um, in America today, at least, you know, we're a very meritocratic society. And those who are, who are poor financially and yet have a lot of skills are actually in pretty good shape. Americans love to recognize talent and love to recognize ethnic minorities or, or people in less developed parts of the nation and, and uh, favor them with scholarships and opportunities and everybody... Um, to be honest, feels very good about themselves when they, when they help the talented poor. But it's probably good to remember that poverty is not simply material or financial. It also has to do with um, things like relative lack of talent. So let's just, uh, let me just label what I think um, we need to bear in mind today. And that is, if, if we're going to respect the poor, we, sh we should respect all the poor, not just the financially poor. We should 
Uh, respect those who are poor in personality, those who are dull, those who complain, those who are poor storytellers, and so forth. Um, we should respect those who are poor in mind, those who aren't academically gifted, don't have any high skills, or those who are relatively uneducated, those who don't learn things rapidly. And of course, we should respect those who are poor in body, those who are disabled in some way, or simply very young or very old and don't have a lot of capacity. So James, uh, we would say then, has chosen his example very wisely. You know, um, the people who come in the door, he says, chapter 2, um, you know, look very different and maybe in, in ways that we can still resonate with. There's a man who comes in in a gold ring and fine clothes, another man in shabby clothes comes in. I, I don't know about you, but um, I will confess that I have certain prejudices. And I do have my, probably my number one prejudice is someone who doesn't smell good. Um, but in my experience, maybe your experience, uh, shabby clothes and, and not, not being clean may come together. And, and here's, here's the problem. Uh, to this day, we can recoil when we meet somebody who's one with us in the faith and yet looks poor, looks shabby, maybe doesn't smell so good and, and caught off guard, we, we can favor the rich, the person who's giving off signs of prosperity and health and, and being put together and we disrespect the person is poor. Now what this means, just to say it again, is that if we favor the rich over the poor, we're, we're failing the tests of true religion. Um, and James brings that out in, in other ways. He says, look, when you meet someone who's poor, a little bit later in chapter 2, he says in verses 15, 16, and 17, he says, what we dare not do is say to the brother who's in need, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. What we need to do is, is take action. And so personally, and as Christian leaders, we need to ask questions like, do I favor the rich? Do I help my needy brothers? Am I content, by contrast, with, with kind words and kind wishes? Now, it gets a little bit stronger, um, this question, am I failing the test of true religion? Um, I'm kind of repeating myself by design um, in chapter 3. So, the first test of true religion is not to be... Um, disrespectful or, or dishonoring or to fail to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan in their distress. The second test, again, is to control the tongue. And, um, and it says this in chapter 3 about controlling the tongue. It says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because we who teach will be judged more strictly. If anyone is never involved in what he says, he is a perfect man. Tiny bit later, he says, all kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles have been tamed by man, but no man, no human, no human being, it could be translated, the Greek uses a rare word, no human being can tame the tongue. So let's just, let's just make sure we're labeling this. Test of true religion, care for widows, the orphans and the widows in their distress, control the tongue, unstained by the world. Uh, this first scene is telling us we're not so very mindful of, uh, of the orphan, the widow, the poor person. The orphan and the widow are, are the archetypal poor people. And 
in that first scene when we tell the per poor person to sit on the floor, we're, we're not caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Uh, second, chapter 3 says, we don't tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. So we fail test one. We fail test two. No one can tame the tongue. And we fail test three because we are um, far too prone to court favor with the rich and the powerful to see if we can get any, anything from them. Uh, just to speak personally again, uh, one of my great temptations, because I'm a highly educated person, I have a PhD, you know, we're probably in the same position here, we're highly educated people, is we have this tendency uh, to see ourselves as, uh, or to reflexively feel that we belong to the elite educated class. And so we want to be ex accepted, we want to be approved, and, and there's a lot of tension when educated people look at us and think we're backward and uneducated. And, and so we want the world's favor. We want the world's respect. So there are three tests of true religion. Caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan. We fail that. Controlling the tongue. James 3 says we fail that. And number three, we are unspotted by the world. And James 4 says we fail that. And that, that does lead us to the gospel according to James, which is God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's James 4, verses 6 and verse 10. That's my understanding of the big structure of the book. Three tests of true religion. We fail all three. Therefore, humble yourself before the Lord. He gives grace to the humble. He will lift you up. Now, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, and I'm obviously spending more time with the first half of James, then with the second half of James, because to be honest, it's more ignored. Uh, we study chapter 2, 14 to 26 much more. It is, uh, you know, generally, I think, properly construed as the theological high point, the most important systematic aspect of the book of James. Um, but we have to pay attention to the whole of the chapter. So chapter 2, verses 8 to 13 say that, um, that true religion, true faith, True obedience, following God, is uh, is an all or nothing affair in a way that may challenge our sensibility a little bit. And so, let me just read the passage to you: James, chapter two, verses eight through thirteen. And again, I'm going to be using the NIV translation. This is God's word. If you really keep the royal law that is found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, to get a picture of what James is saying, let's just pull back and, and say that um, a lot of people like to divide the world into two classes. Um, there's, 
There's uh, homebodies and travelers. There are liberals and conservatives. There are people who are task-oriented and people-oriented. And we could play that game with obedience and uh, following the Lord. And we could say, well, you know, um, we can divide the world and the people who those, uh, those who do follow the Lord and those who don't follow the Lord. On the other hand, there are, um, there are people who like to show how the world is not to be divided in two categories. We could say there are two categories of people, those who like to divide people in two categories of people and those who don't. And, and there are a lot of things that maybe can't be divided into all or nothing. Uh, for example, a lot of activities are possibly done partially. Did you eat breakfast today? Well, I ate a little bit of breakfast. I, you know, I grabbed a bagel and I had a, a bit of coffee or a, a bit of tea. I'm not sure if I had breakfast or not. Or, or a mother could ask her children, did you clean up your room the way you were supposed to? Well, you know, I cleaned up my room a little. I put away my clothes. I stuffed them in the drawers. On the other hand, if you look carefully, that some of the drawers are partially open. There's, you know, there's a sock hanging out of one and a sleeve of a shirt hanging out of another one. Did you make the bed? Well, sort of. I pulled up the covers, but you know they're so lumpy, it's like a relief map of Tibet. And, and so it's not clear if I cleaned up my room or not. And then there are other activities that are all or nothing. Today happens to be an election day in America, and you know it really doesn't matter if you win your election by 11 votes or by 470,000 votes. Uh, you either win or you lose. At the moment, I have a daughter who's who's expecting a child. And, and you know, you're, you're not, there's no such thing as being partially pregnant. You're, you're either pregnant or you're not. And many people would put obedience into this category of, of partial activity. They would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make some spiritual progress. Um, you know, I used to uh, speak angrily. I used to take God's name in vain a lot. I've really cut down quite a bit. Uh, I'm making some success. I'm, I'm learning how to control my tongue. And, you know, if you're in the book of Romans, Romans 6, 7, and 8, you know, we're, we're alive in Christ. We've defeated sin. And uh, we're, we're instruments of, of righteousness, Romans 6. And then Romans 7 says, well, you know, not so fast. The good I would do, I, I do not do. I do the very things that I hate. And then Romans 8 then tells us again that, you know, there's no condemnation and we're children of God and we're walking in the footsteps of Christ being conformed to his image. And so it seems like we can make partial progress as, as believers. And yet James 2 is telling us there's a sense in which obedience is either all or nothing. He says, again, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. It's, it's all or it's nothing. He makes this interesting remark in verse 8 that maybe explains uh, his reasoning. He doesn't pour it out, but I think it's very important. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. So the, the idea is that God has given us, Jesus has given us a royal law. The royal law is love your neighbors yourself, which of course is known in the Old Testament, and, and yet Jesus promulgated it with force, we may say, and in uh, Matthew chapter 22 in the parallel passages. And if you don't love your neighbors yourself, you are a lawbreaker. 
Now, we can just pause for a second and, and make sure we understand that, that this royal law is royal in two ways. Uh, number one, it is the law of the king, a law, the law of King Jesus. And number two, it is the law of the kingdom. It's the way we operate when we follow Jesus. It is the law of the king and the law of the kingdom. Moses said, love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus, of course, also shows us how to love a neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, in the incarnation, became our neighbor. And by his atoning sacrifice, he loved neighbors to whom he owed nothing, his death and resurrection on our behalf. And then uh, Paul, meditating on the work of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, says, we should live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So that's, that's the royal law. Now, the royal law, love your neighbors yourself, leads us into all the particular laws that govern the kingdom and life following the king, laws that are repeated in the New Testament and given as the Decalogue. So let's just make sure we see this. How do we love people by law-keeping? Well, um, we love our neighbors by respecting their property, by not stealing. And um, we don't steal their possessions. We don't steal their name. We don't want to steal their wife or their husband. Um, we preserve our neighbor's property in Old Testament law. If you see your neighbor's donkey wandering, you, you bring it back. You recognize it, bring it back to him. Deuteronomy chapter 22 we don't see wandering donkeys very often these days, but we should still follow the principle and, and take care of the property of our neighbor if we see something is amiss. And, you know, we, honor our, we, we love our parents by honoring them, and we love our spouses by being faithful to them. That's commandments 5 and 7. Of course, certainly unloving to kill somebody. Uh, we love our neighbors by telling the truth to them and telling the truth about them. And... Tenth commandment, we love our neighbors by rejoicing in the good gifts God gives them instead of coveting their goods. And so it's pretty clear that, that uh, love your neighbors yourself really is a, a royal law. It's, it's a law given by the king, and it's the way the kingdom operates. And then with a little bit of irony, I think, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, James says, You are doing very well if you can love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the question, of course, is, is can you love your neighbors yourself? And maybe, again, we could, uh, we could think just a tiny bit about the problem of favoritism. You see, James, James comes back to favoritism in verse 9. He says, if you show favoritism. Why does he keep coming back to favoritism? If you show favoritism, you sin or are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Again, we're prone to think, and what's the big deal about favoritism? Why does he keep pounding this a theme of favoritism? Why does that make us transgressors? It's such a small thing. It's so instinctive to you know, favor somebody a little bit because they have a uh, you know, beautiful face or nice hair. They, you know, they have uh, a sort of a confident posture. Who, who can help doing that? It's such a small matter. And of course, if I may get a drink for a second. James is pointing out, I believe, that there's no such thing as a small sin. I have um, some neighbors, some fine people, um, morally speaking, in many ways, in my neighborhood, who are active 
uh, devotees of the little white lie. They think little white lies are good, that it's, it's good to lie, people, lie to people at the right moment. And, um, and we would say, you know, there's probably no such thing as a little white lie. If you tell a lie, a lie is a lie. And, and the king says we don't lie to each other. And, and if you commit these little sins, like favoritism, verse 9, you have broken the whole law and you are guilty of the whole law. There's even the language that, uh, that's used here in James is namas, law, which tends to refer to law globally rather than entole, a particular command. You've broken the law as, as, as a whole. And so what James is saying here is that obedience to God is in an important way all or nothing. It's not like cleaning the room partially. Um, you either fully devote yourself to obeying God or you don't obey him at all. And, and we might ask the question, how, how or why can that be so? And the, and the answer is, as we'll see in the text, that the law is the law of God. It's God's law. And because God gave the law, any disobedience to the law is not just disobedience to a, a particular command, it's disobedience to God, the king who gave the law. It's an act of of rebellion, especially if it's deliberate. And of course, the law reflects his character. So it's any particular sin is, is against God because, you know, we tell the truth largely because God is the truth teller. He is true and his word is truth. And, and we preserve life because God's the life giver, life preserver. And, and we're faithful to our spouses in part because God is faithful to his spouse, the church and to Israel. And so all the laws uh, reflect God's character. And if I may, I'm going to su suggest that, that favoritism actually connects with most of the law, uh, maybe all the law of God, and violates it. So the 10th commandment, just to go backwards, if you favor the rich over the poor, there's a good chance you're coveting their favor, their power, what they can give you. And of course, if you tell the poor person to sit on the floor, that's a false witness because it says the poor man is of less worth than the rich man. And, and uh, of course, the Bible says we're all made in God's image and we're redeemed the same way. And favoritism is thievery because it robs the poor of the dignity that they deserve. And it kills their spirit, the sixth commandment, by demeaning them even in the church where they should be honored and receive a love. And it defiles our worship, the fourth commandment. And it misrepresents God. It takes God's name in vain because God doesn't play favorites. And so why should we, when we say we're forming our community and being formed in conformity to the image of Christ, as Romans 8.29 says. And of course, the most basic issue is that it's rebelling against God who tells us not to play favorites. That's the first and the second commandments. Now, now look one more time at, at our passage, verses 10 and 11 with me. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now what he's saying here is that God gives all the laws. The law about murder is given by God. The law about adultery is given by God. The law about thievery, we would add, or stealing, is also given by God. So, if you decide you're going to obey one law but not another, you're actually not following God at all. You're actually following your own judgment. You're looking at the laws of God as uh, suggestions or, or recommendations or, 
or uh, value statements, and you'll decide which of them to follow and which you will not follow. You will um, judge the law to be sound or unsound, and you will follow the ones, you will obey the laws that you consider to be sound. And so what you're actually doing is put yourself, putting yourself in the position of the final arbiter of what's right and wrong, and you're, we might say you're consulting with God if you read all of his commands and, and decide to follow this one but not that one. You're consulting with God, but you're not actually obeying God or following God. You're, you're only really following God when you're doing things that are hard, that run against your sensibilities, that, that challenge you, that uh, force you to suspend your personal judgment on some matter, maybe a matter that's uh, controverted in our society, maybe, maybe a teaching of the Bible that is very unpopular in society. And certainly I think we all know that that the church is prone to lay aside commands, ignore commands, or to question commands, certainly critics, um, skeptics regarding the faith, liberals, liberal theologians are, are prone to say, well, that commandment, especially we think today of sexual ethics, that, that commandment is outdated. We don't need that anymore. We don't, we don't need to honor marriage because, you know, it's more or less passe and our culture has other ways of doing things and and, you know, biblical sex ethics assumed the connection between uh, sex and parenting, and we've, we've severed that connection, and so we don't need biblical sex ethics anymore. So it's a, a, a secular critic, and, and to be honest, unfortunately, some left-wing Christians would say the same thing. Now, the mentality behind all this is a, a certain outlook toward uh, works, we might say, or, or acts of obedience, or, or the deeds of following God. And as one theologian said, a lot of people think of obedience as a pile of bricks, and every time uh, you obey a law of God, the, the pile of bricks is getting a little bigger, and every time you disobey a commandment, the pile of bricks is getting a little bit smaller. But from James' perspective, obedience is more like a sheet of glass. And when you break a command, especially deliberately, it's like taking a brick and throwing it through a sheet of glass and you shatter the hole. Let me, let me illustrate uh, for a moment. When I was 50 years old, which is uh, a few years ago by now, I got a, a big time physical for the first time in many years. And uh, they, they looked at my whole person and uh, they were very pleased on the whole. Uh, one technician uh, kind of raved to me about my heart. He said, you know, your heart is just firing with explosive power and your valves are opening clickety-clack and there's no, there's no leakage of blood. Your, your heart's just terrific. And another, another person said, incredibly told me that I had beautiful lungs. I, I never even heard of such a thing before, but I had beautiful lungs and they're, they're so large and so healthy that they couldn't fit on one x-ray plate. So that was, that was also... Very exciting. The problem is um, that I had an enlarged spleen, at least so the doctor thought upon palpating, palpitating my abdomen. And uh, that really had to be checked because an enlarged spleen could be a sign of, of uh, diseases of the spleen, including cancer. And if you have certain diseases of the spleen, it will kill you within a year. So it really wouldn't matter if my spleen had certain diseases how healthy my heart was. It really wouldn't matter how healthy my lungs are, how strong my hands or how unmarred my skin or how 
any other feature of my body was. If my spleen was out of order, I could die. Health is all or nothing. If one physical system fails, there's total failure. And in a similar vein, if one system of obedience fails, if I say, I'm, I'm going to follow God, except I'm going to lie every time it's advantageous to me, uh, that person is actually living in rebellion against God. Again, favoritism is, is a way uh, to look at that. James uses that because it ties into worldliness. And it ties into um, the way we treat the poor. And it ties into the way we use our tongue, how we talk to people who have less power and less social standing than we do. And perhaps we can apply that to ourselves even in the church. The way we talk to people in the church might vary. And, you know, uh, those who have power and authority in the church get better treatment than those who don't. Uh, certainly that's a problem, I will say, it's a problem in America and much in the news in America today as, as we hear a lot about pastors who are bullies and pastors who are demeaning. Now, another way to look at all this as we have this term, um, royal law, is to remember that God's sovereignty has two aspects to it. It has the aspect of sovereignty over history, but it also entails moral sovereignty. So God governs events, and he also governs the way we ought to live. We might call James a description of God's moral reign. To go back to the book of Romans, we could say Romans stresses God's reign or sovereignty over history, and James stresses his sovereignty over morals. Uh, and James chapter 2, saying if you break one part of the law, you break the whole, is saying, you know, uh, obedience is not a cafeteria type event. We don't, we don't see an array of commandments and say, you know, I'll pick this one and this one, kind of like I'll take, you know, roasted chicken at this uh, cafeteria. I'll get a chicken wing and I'll have some, uh, I'll have some fruit and I'll have some french fries and, and that's my meal. I pick and choose. It's more like going to one of those rare restaurants to say, this is what the chef has prepared for you. And this is the meal, everything hangs together. And if you come here, you're going to get the meal the chef prepares. Uh, and, and to reject a part of that meal is to reject the chef as a whole, to reject his authority. Now, again, this is a hard teaching, and it ends um, with a hard word. Uh, James chapter 2, 12 and 13 say uh, that, that his readers will be judged, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that stings, you know. A judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And probably, again, the reference is merciful to the orphan, the widow, the needy, the poor. Now there's a little burst at the end. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and, and he doesn't really tell us how that happens. We, we have already seen chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So mercy triumphs over judgment. When we realize that we are under judgment and we say, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, James doesn't specify how this mercy triumphs over judgment. James does not say what the rest of the New Testament says. You know, for example, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the gospel of Jesus work. Paul says he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised for our justification. That's a 
that's a summary statement of the gospel from the book of, of Romans. And um, we could look at other passages of the New Testament that describe the work, the mediating work of Christ. But again, let's just pause and think this through. How does mercy triumph over judgment? Well, it, it begins by a proper attitude toward our sin. And we don't excuse our sin by blaming others, James 1, saying, they tempted me. And we don't despair and give in to shame and simply say, judgment's going to be shown. No, no, mercy triumphs over judgment. We don't collapse in despair and guilt and shame and self-recrimination. We also don't turn toward simply trying harder, James 2, 3, and 4, make it clear that no one perfectly meets those three tests of true religion. What we do is we face our sin and we take it to the Lord and we plead for the mercy that triumphs over judgment because the gospel goes to sinners, it goes to the unworthy, it goes, as Jesus says, to the poor in spirit and we're not picking and choosing among our commands. We're not excusing disobedience. We're saying, Lord, uh, your law as a whole tells me I don't meet the marks of true religion set out in 126 and 27. And I admit that I'm under your judgment. I, I admit that I need your mercy. And I plead to you for your mercy as it is presented to us in Christ. Nima.